Genesis 4. Okay, so here's where we're at. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve partake of the forbidden fruit, and everything breaks. The very fabric, Romans 8, verse 20 would say, the very fabric of the universe cracks, and now all creation groans and travails, waiting for the redemption, the unveiling of what we're supposed to be. That whole thing was broken. And it, it, it's, it's like this. Uh, have you ever used poison on weeds? Now you spray them, do they die instantly? No, they're still alive, but you know it's just a matter of time. Just a matter of time. So while Adam and Eve didn't fall down dead, it's a matter of time. They had been sprayed with Roundup and death was now haunting them. And God said, hey, this thing called the ground, you're going to work it, you're going to toil on it, you're going to war against it, and then one day it will win, and you'll come back to the dust. So everything gets fractured. Um, it was supposed to be beautiful. Like imagine a place where you cut a twig off a tree, you just poke it in the ground, and it grows. That's Eden. So from, I think, Genesis 4 forward, People have always been striving to get back to Eden. In some realm, we're all trying to get back to Eden. But what happens is this, you can't. And the more you try, the worse it gets. So it's like this, have you ever been stuck in the mud? Of course, it's Grants Pass. I don't even have to ask that. When you were stuck in the mud, right? Especially this year with 7,000 inches of rain. When you get stuck in the mud, if you start to really floor it and fight it, what happens? You just get more and more stuck. You get deeper and deeper. You sink the pumpkin, and then it's 250 bucks to a towing company. All right? You have to get outside help. So really, what the rest of the Bible is, is it's mankind trying to get unstuck from the mud and just making things worse. So if that's hopeful, <laughs> then enjoy the rest of the Bible, because it only gets hopeful when Jesus appears, because he is the outside help that is able to now get us out of the mud. So we're going to see, obviously, really quickly, mud. It gets dirty quick. Genesis 4. I call verses 1 through 7 in my own outline, boys, a couple of boys. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to Yahweh an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And Yahweh had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Yahweh said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is against you, but you must rule over it. A couple of boys. We looked at this on Sunday. I'll clean up some loose ends, I hope. Number one, in verse one, it says, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived in Borcane. Is sex a good thing? Yes. For some reason, the church, and it really goes back about, oh, 400 years to the Reformation, church has viewed sex almost in a prudish manner. And I think it's really unhealthy because children then that grow up in the church have a kind of a stigma with sex that it's like this dirty thing uh, that you don't do and you need to save it for someone you love, which is just weird in the first place. So there's this stigma with it, and, and, I, and I think it's wrong because God 
God creates the parts, right? When God formed Adam, Satan wasn't there adding parts to Adam, right? God formed Adam the way he wanted Adam to be, with all the parts. He made sex enjoyable. He, he made the drives in us. It wasn't God makes Adam and Eve, and he's like, hey, I got to take off for a while. He comes back, and he's like, what are you two doing? Adam, you get off of her right now. I can't leave you guys alone for one minute. This is crazy. No. And yet we have that idea in us. And so I always want to push back against that, that sex is God's gift to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply is the very first command of the Bible. That it's a really good, beautiful thing. It's awesome. But it's supposed to be, notice, Cain knew his wife. There's the important part. So to me, sex is like my comparison that I give to young people. It's like nuclear power. Nuclear power, yeah, it's that good. (laughs) Nuclear power is the greatest force mankind has ever mastered. There's nothing more powerful than nuclear power. And if you put nuclear power inside a concrete rebar reinforced reactor, man, it does lots of good things. It turns these lights on. It charges your Prius. It makes your iPhone work. It does a lot of really good things inside of the concrete rebar of a reactor. Beautiful, wonderful. But you take that same nuclear force and you pull it out of the concrete rebarred, reinforced reactor and you have it stand alone, what happens to that same reaction then? It becomes a bomb and is destructive. That's sex. Inside this thing God designs where it's a man and a woman One plus one, beautiful, incredible for life. Oh, it's beautiful. Two get a better reward for their labor, right? It's amazing. Take it outside of that. One of the major things that I deal with as a pastor is sexual sin. The detonation that happens in the life of people that begin to play outside of the confines that God put for it, right? So sex, man, great thing. It's awesome. It's a gift. So Adam his wife, they get this kid named Cain. The name literally means acquire. And there's this little phrase, and if you have any commentaries or if you have different kinds of Bibles, they'll all have comments on this because no one knows how to translate it. The ESV says, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. They frame it very positively. But if you read other translations, they'll put it like this. I have gotten a man equal with Yahweh, which is just as valid of a translation. And what they say is that Eve believed she had given birth to the promised child of Genesis 3.15. I've got him, the Redeemer, the Messiah. I've produced him. So that's one way. Another one that's just as valid is I've gotten a man like God. And that that translation means this, just like God created man and woman, Adam and Eve, I've done the same thing. I've created a man. Like God created a man, I've done the same thing as God. So which one is it? I have no idea. I'll give you what I think though, and it's just my thought on it. I think what we're supposed to see from Genesis 3 all the way to the flood is the descent of mankind. Things get more, we get more and more stuck in the mud. So I tend to look at this, not positively, but negatively. Eve is boasting in a way here. Maybe she's saying, I've done something just like God because the temptation of Genesis 3 was, if you eat this, you'll be like God. So now she might be believing, hey, I'm like God. Just like God can create Men and women, I can do the same thing. This is amazing. That's the way I look at it. And then even when you look at her next son, his name is Abel. Do you know what Abel means? Vanity or nothingness. How funny is that to me? Right? The first child, he's like God. The second child, he's nothing. Isn't that parenting? (laughs) You get your firstborn, And you're like, I will craft this child into perfection. 
They will be God. They'll never make mistakes. I will be the perfect parent. I'll absolutely craft them into what God wants them to be. I will beat all the odds. They will not sin. They will recover Eden, right? And then after two years, you have your second son because you realize, man, that did not work. Let's try this again. That's how people have second child. Let's give this thing another. That was nothing. Let's do this thing again. So that's what I believe. I believe it's negative. Like, oh, and I think it sets Cain up that he has a complex out of this. Like she mothers him and dotes on him and think, tries to create something that is absolutely impossible. And what we know really from the entirety of scripture is this, there is no unbroken family. Try to find a family that does not have problems in the Bible. You won't find one. Brothers killing brothers. Brothers betraying brothers. Husbands and wives having tension. There's no perfect family. So this one is broken. And I think that Cain is a product of kind of an environment that's a little bit funky here. And it, and it kind of breaks him in a way. One of the things I do in premarital counseling is I always lower the bar of expectation. I think one of the problems a lot of times in a marriage is the man will look at the wife and, and, and think like, she has to satisfy my every need. She has to be all these things and look like a model at the same time. And what happens in that kind of a relationship is you put such a high pressure on somebody, they cannot sustain that and it breaks. So I always try to just lower the bar, lower the bar. We can do the same thing to our kids. We can have such a high expectations for our kids. Man, you end up just breaking kids with that. I watched it happen. Um, when my oldest daughter was three, we took her to Myrna Shanifel for swimming lessons right? The rite of passage. <laughs> so they're doing all that. And, and it was the jump off the diving board day. And so all the little kids are lined up and Chrissy gets up there and she didn't want to jump off. So she's a girl. And I'm like, you know what? You don't have to come here, sweetie. Well, the little boy behind her saw that and he's like, man, she gets out of it. Me too. So he goes out there and goes, I don't want to do it, dad. The dad flipped. He's like, come on, son, jump. And everyone's like, oh no. And he, and he said this literally, come on, you're a Miller, represent, boy. You're like, oh no, <laughs> this will not turn out good. Like look out for those things the, that we put so much pressure on marriage and parenting and kids. It's just, it, this thing's gonna break, man. You, you cannot do that. That's way too high. Raising kids, I'll tell you, being a parent is the toughest job I've ever had. Hands down, amen. It is hard, hard work. Like there's this balance that you've always got to be like, how do I balance this? Like they say this about kids. If you praise a kid for his natural ability, you will break them. Because what they do is then they kind of curl up and they're like, well, you know, I got lucky that last time, but maybe my natural ability won't get me lucky this time. They say, instead, you're supposed to praise kids for effort. Like you really worked at that? You, man, I'm like, man, I have blown that so many times with my kids. Oh my goodness, I better start a counseling fund. Like it's amazingly hard work. This thing got broke really early. It's so important to be a humble parent, be a humble spouse, be learning. So this Friday, Charity and I, guess where we're gonna be? There's a parenting seminar. I'm like, I'll go, please. You've raised kids. Tell me how to do it, man. I'm still trying to figure this thing out. I got a 16-year-old and I have teenagers. There's nothing tougher than teenagers. Help me. You want help? Man, keep getting advice. Sign up, come this Friday. A guy that I really admire and respect, Lowell Anderson's leading it. Come, get some help, man. We all need help raising kids. There's no tougher job to me under the sun than trying to raise children. So right here, I think... Eve has put this pressure on Cain and we'll see the reverberations of that mistake. So, you know, on Sunday I said, Cain makes this offering. Abel makes this offering. Cain offers the, the fruit of the ground. Abel offers some kind of animal, a lamb, most likely could be a goat. God has regard for Cain or for Abel's offering and has no regard for Cain's offering. So why is that? Yes. 
One commentator said, because he offered veggies. Even God doesn't want them. <laughs> Keep them. You know, I'll take the meat. Thank you very much. <laughs> I think there might be more of a reason than that. Uh, but I want to make one note. Both these guys give free will. They're not told to. They just realize I'm a steward of this thing. God has blessed me so much. How can I not give? There is something I've repeated to my girls for years when it comes to boys. I tell them this, you will know the difference between a boy and a man by this simple test. Boys are takers, men are givers. And look out for boys. And this has nothing to do with age. You can have a 40-year-old boy taker. You do not want to be married to a taker. Selfishness kills marriages. So here you have these two young men. They do one thing right. They are givers. Are we givers? Sometimes I think we can get sucked into capitalism. And capitalism is this. Work harder so you can have more. And we can almost make it seem like that's a godly system. Or other people get sucked into communism, which is this. You don't have to work and everybody gets the same. I don't think God ordains either of those systems. I believe if you read the Bible, God has this system, and I just call it charity. Work hard so you can be generous. To me, that's the system of the scriptures. Work hard so that you'll have something to give. Read Ephesians chapter 5. Work harder so you can be generous. Excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4. Work that way. Well, Matt, why would I want to do that? Why would I give away anything? Because you're representing God. We're built in his image. When you give, when you give, here's what science has proved. You can Google this if you want. Two neuroscientists, Jorge Moll and Jordan Grafman, did this study on people when they were giving and they watched their brain. Selfless, not getting anything back, no terrible motives, just selfless service, selfless giving. Here's what they found. The parts of the brain that light up when you give are the same parts of the brain that light up when you have really good food or when you have sex. Same parts. Here we go. Now I'm not saying anymore else on sex. That's it. <laughs> what? We're designed for that. You get joy. The Bible says it is better to give than to receive. We are designed for that, all right? Be givers, be generous. So Sunday, I said this about Cain. I said, he's a pagan. And pagans, they believe they can buy God off, that they can somehow back God into a corner, they can make an offering, they can make a sacrifice, and then they back God into a corner, and then God has to do what we demand of him. I said, I try to explain why I believe that's true of Cain, why God does not regard his sacrifice. And here are the texts. In Hebrews 11, it says that Abel offered his sacrifice with faith, but Cain did not. So Cain didn't offer his with faith. 1 John 3.12 says that Cain was actually the seed of the evil one. So we're going to see in Genesis, there's actually a parting of the two seeds, the line of the serpent and the line of the woman. Cain is of the line of the evil one. But the big one for me is Jude 11, where it says this. It says that Cain made his offering literally in the Greek for wages. He was trying to buy off God. God, look, look what I gave you. Now, God, you owe me. He was trying to buy what can only be given. You cannot buy God's favor. Read Acts chapter eight. There's a guy named Simon who tries to do it and he is rebuked by Peter. Let your money perish with you. You cannot buy these things. You cannot buy God's favor. You cannot earn what can only be given. That's paganism. Paganism is I can force God to do what I say and it's very dangerous. That somehow now God owes me right? God, I, you owe me, man. I went to Wednesday night. That's extra credit, right? Come on. Now you owe me. You have to answer this. Just today, I read this blog of this atheist, 
And he was answering the question of why he doesn't believe anymore. And this is the story he told. He said, when I was a little boy, I had stolen a cassette, Weird Al Yankovic's, yeah, <laughs> polka dance cassette from my uncle. And then I had lost it. And my uncle was getting mad. So I prayed to God to help me find the cassette. I didn't find it. So then he just said, no more God for me. Paganism. God, you owe me. Bail me out of this bad situation. I stole something I shouldn't have. Now, God, it's your job to bail me out of this. And if you don't, okay, I'm done with you. It's paganism. And it's always going to end with anger and that kind of stuff. So I believe that's Cain's problem. There's a problem of his heart. He was wanting to buy it. He was doing it for wages. And what you see throughout the rest of the Bible is God just says, I don't play that game at all. I, I give my favor. You cannot earn it. You cannot buy it. That's not how I work. Read Amos chapter five, where God says, I hate it when you're in church. I hate it when you're making these offerings. I hate that because you think you're playing me for a fool, but you can't buy me off. That's not how I work, all right? So be aware of one final thing before we leave. And it's the way that God warns Cain. Sin is crouching at the door. It's personified. Sin is more than a power. It's more than a choice. It's more than a force. Ephesians 6.12 says it's principalities, it's powers, it's spiritual wickedness in high places. It's something and it crouches. Why do animals crouch? To hide right before they attack you, right? How interesting is that? A couple of years ago, I was walking in Cathedral Hills and my dog Chloe was still alive at that time and she's walking with me and I'm just humming along, having a great time. And all of a sudden as I'm walking, Chloe starts, she's a golden retriever. She starts to growl and like her her hair on the back comes up. Now, I didn't even know golden retrievers could growl. I'm like, what's up with you? They're the nicest animal in the world. I'm like, what is wrong with you? And it, and it just starts to kind of come up and I'm like, eh, oh, whatever, keep walking. I round the corner and there right in the middle of the trail is this dead turkey. Feathers are kind of everywhere, eating the breasts out of it. And I'm like, whoa, what's up with that? Now she's really kind of growling and barking. And I walk right over the turkey and I feel it and it's still warm. I'm like, man, whatever killed this just killed this. And the whole time now, now Chloe's just like, like freaking out. I'm like, shut up. I'm trying to check out this turkey. And then all of a sudden I thought, whatever killed this is probably right around. And the hair on my neck stood up and I started running. Whatever it was, was right there, crouching, hidden. That's when it's dangerous. Sin, sin crouches. And we have to be, I think, in America today, we have to be those that are aware of what is sin. And I've said this before, sin today, we've redefined it as food. Oh, that's sinful. And it's just a big joke now. Oh, that's sinful food, right? There's this great book, it's called People of the Lie. And in the book, People of the Lie, the author says this, the biggest mistake we make and, and he's writing as a clinical psychologist, the biggest mistake we make, the biggest lie we believe is there's no sin. And once we believe that, it's able to hide and crouch and devour us. And we do it all the time. We define, redefine sin all the time. I'm not bitter. I don't have a grudge. I have righteous indignation, right? I just turned sin into something positive right? Not bitterness, not grudge. It's righteous indignation. I, mm, I'm not greedy. I have a strong work ethic. Took something that the Bible says is wrong, and I redefined it as something positive. My, my body is not my idol. I, I'm not consumed by appearance. I'm worried about my health. That's what it is. I'm not stingy. No, I'm not a materialist. I'm prudent with my money. I'm not ruthless. No, I am a sharp business person. I can go on and on and on. We have as a culture redefined sin and we no longer believe there's sin. And now it's able to crouch and devour us. 
The Bible uses this word when it comes to sin in the life of the believer. It says you confess your sins. The word confess, it's the word homo legeo in the Greek. Super simple word. Homo means the same. Legeo means language. That's, that, all that word means is this. You agree with God about his definition of sin. You don't redefine it. You just say, you're right. That's sin. I confess that. I agree with you, Jesus. Now change me. When you do that, you give God the permission to cleanse you from that stuff and change you. Be careful of crouching sin. Now verse 18, or verse eight, excuse me, is bloodshed. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. I have this great Jewish commentary. It says that when he spoke to Abel, he invited him out to the field. Hey, come out to the field with me. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then Yahweh said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And Yahweh said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to Yahweh, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face, I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on this earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then Yahweh said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And Yahweh put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Bloodshed. The descent getting stuck further and further in the mud. Two big questions before we look a little bit into this text. Number one, why did God let Cain get away with murder? I don't know. I'll give you my opinion. My opinion is this. Cain did not know that striking his brother would kill him. No one had died at this point. Death was unknown. He's mad. He now, his sin nature causes him to lash out. He strikes Cain or strikes Abel and Abel dies. And he's probably a little shocked by it because no one had died at that point. So at the worst, I guess this would be manslaughter. So I believe that's why. So secondly, who's now gonna kill Cain? Cain's like, hey, if I leave here, you know, if I'm out by myself, someone's going to kill me. Who, who's around to kill him? My answer to that is Genesis 5 verse 4. It says this, Adam and Eve had many sons and many daughters. And all of them would recognize Cain, the oldest brother. And so there would be a, a, a desire to bring retribution upon him. So imagine a couple that lives for 900 years. How many kids would they have? Mm, a couple. So most of us know like an older person, maybe they're 60, 70, 80, 90, whatever. And you're like, hey, how many siblings did you have? 10, 12, right? J just 100 years ago, there were these massive families. And, and usually mom and dad of those massive families lived to 60 or 70. So there'd be a ton of people. Sometimes, some people estimate by the end of Adam's life, there would have been 100,000 people on earth which, okay, you have 900 years for that to happen. I don't think that's very, uh, that, that's very conservative, actually. So that, that's who he's worried about. I want you to notice a couple things. Number one, God's great concern for justice. His blood is crying out to me. God cares about justice. Are you glad about that? If you're not, you haven't been hurt hard enough yet. And I hope you never are. Because I tell people that have been hurt bad, women who have been hurt by, by men, boys who have been hurt by, bad by people, I tell them, God sees and God knows. And God says this, Romans chapter 12, vengeance is mine, I will repay. God is a God of justice. Number one, 
You see God's concern for justice. But number two, right with that, which is going to launch everything towards Jesus, is God's care for the sinner. Have you seen that in this text? You have Cain, who the moment the thoughts in his brain begin to conceive sin, back up in verses six and seven, when he is now angry and his face has fallen, what does God immediately do? Hey, bud, what's up? Why is your face fallen? Why are you so angry? Hey, if you do well, don't you know? You're going to be accepted. God immediately comes and warns him. Look out, buddy. Has God's Spirit ever done that to you? Like warns you, don't answer that phone call. Don't go to that house. Don't talk to that person. And when you obey, oh, it's safety. And when you don't, bad news. God still does it. God still warns us, hey, Matt, what are you doing right now, man? Why are you thinking those thoughts? Why are you mad at that person? Stop it. Knock it off. It's not righteous indignation. It's a grudge and it's bitterness. Knock it off. And when I yield and do well, oh, it goes well for me. And when I don't, it's a bummer. God's care for the sinner goes to him, speaks to him. Come on, right? And then he sins. And what does God do then? Comes and cares for him even more. To me, verse 10 is the voice of a heartbroken dad. Yahweh said, what have you done, buddy? And then verses 11 and 12 is, don't you know the repercussions of this? Buddy, oh, my heart is broken for you. This is gonna be so hard. And then Cain's response to me is super instructive. Does he repent? What does he say? Look at verse 13. My punishment is greater than I can bear. Think about this just for a second. You just killed your brother. And what's his response? My punishment is greater than I can bear. God, you're unfair. The sinner who had been warned, carried it out, is now saying, God, you're unfair. No. 2 Corinthians 7 says there's two kinds of repentance. There's godly repentance, and that leads to salvation. And there's worldly repentance, and that leads to death. There's two ways to deal with sin. One man brings salvation. The other, the other brings death. It's maybe like this. I have a daughter, a number of years ago, and this daughter, more than any of my children, loves candy. She'd gone to a birthday party. She'd come home, big bag of candy. She walks in. It was almost dinner time, so I said, sweetie, don't eat the candy before dinner. So five minutes later or so, I look over at her, and she's chewing on something. So I said, sweetie, what are you chewing on? Mm-hmm. Open your mouth. Like five Jolly Ranchers come out. I'm like, give me your bag of candy. She gives me the bag of candy. Instantly, she goes into this mode. She grabs a hold of my leg. Daddy, I'm so sorry I ate that candy. I say, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. And so I sit down on the counter. And I say, okay, let's sit down. She sits right next to me at the dinner table. She is literally petting me. Dad, dad, dad. I said, what? Can I have my candy back after dinner? I said, no. She snapped. Well, then I will go on the counter and I will grab it. I said, what? Who are you? A little four-year-old? I said, then I will just send you to your room right now and you'll go to bed. Then when you go to bed tonight, I will sneak out of my room and I will come down and I will get the candy off that counter. I just went, huh? And I said, well, then I will set it up above the kitchen cabinets. I will get a chair and I will climb up there and I will get my candy. I just looked at her mom. I said, look what your daughter's doing. That's good parenting, men. Was she repentant? No, it's punishment. You'll always know true repentance because true repentance says, do whatever you gotta do to me because I'm guilty. Whatever you gotta do, cop, police, judge, I am guilty, do whatever you gotta do to me. That's true repentance. Worldly repentance is just worried about the punishment. 
It's too much. I can't bear it. God, you're unfair. In fact, he goes further than what God does. He says, you're driving me from your face. Did God ever say that? Did God say, I'm banishing you from my presence? He never says that. I believe that's why in verse 15, he says, not so. Not so. I think it's more like I mentioned a couple of Sundays ago that sometimes if you dig into like a, someone returning from college and they're like, you know, I don't believe in God anymore. And you start to dig at them like, well, when was this? When did you start not believing in God? Very often what you find is the real reason. Well, I stopped believing in God when I moved in with my boyfriend. Oh, you wanted to get away from the gaze of God. You don't want him looking in on you anymore. That's why. That's what you're trying to do now. Okay. That's what Cain's doing right here. I want to get away from the gaze of God. He's driving himself from God's presence, right? So what does God do now? You've got this guy that's been warned about sin. He carries out the sin. He murders his brother. He's unrepentant. Does God smite him now? No, what does God say? It's amazing. Verse 15, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. Whose job is vengeance? Deuteronomy 32, 35, the books of Moses, the last book, his last message, he says, listen, congregation, listen, vengeance belongs to God. So what is God seeing right here? To this non-repentant murderer, I will protect you. That's unbelievable to me. No, no, I'm gonna protect you. I, I realize it was manslaughter, maybe, maybe saying that, maybe not. But no matter, the, any way you translate it, God is saying to this unrepentant sinner, I'm gonna preserve your life. I'll be the protector on you. I'll put a mark on you and I will protect you from this day forward. To me, that's just unbelievable. There is so much grace and how God walks out this first unrepentant murder, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. You say, God, you are unbelievable. <sighs> I think believers, we're supposed to be a lot like this. That when someone wrongs me, maybe they're even unrepentant at a certain level. I need to be, I bear no ill will toward you. In fact, I want to care for you. I'll even be your protector. I'm not going to slander you. I'm not going to talk bad about you to other people. I'm going to protect you that way. Even though I could, because it's true. But I'm not going to do that to you. I think when we do stuff like that, we look like God. Because I want the best for you. Cain, I want the best for you. Person that sinned, I still want the best for you. Man, that's when we look most like God. So this is grace, just grace. Is it really hot in here or is it just me? I don't know. It's perfect, someone said. Probably not a guy. That's why they have dual... The, the brilliance of dual controls inside of a vehicle. Well, I'll be pretty quick here. Verse 17, we now have the baby boom. Cain knew his wife. Where did Cain get his wife? Probably his sister. Genesis chapter five, verse four, that Adam and I had many other sons, many other daughters. Uh, their DNA would have been very different than ours. There's no prohibition against it yet. Uh, that comes very later because of, obvious issues. But at this time, that's, that's all there was. There you have it. Maybe he didn't even know his sister because he's moved out. And you know, there's years and years going on here. Centuries, nine centuries happening. And she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad. And Irad fathered Mahujahel. And Mahujahel fathered Methushiel, and Methushiel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, which means ornament, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jubal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, Jabel, excuse me, and his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who played the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain, and he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nema. 
And Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Hmm. So we now have a city. And inside of this city, you now have culture, right? There's, there's agriculture, there's tents, there's industry, uh, there's music. I believe this is the idea that's happening. And, and we'll see this more as we get into chapters five and six. This is, this is Cain saying, I'm gonna get culture. Okay, I've blown it, I've murdered, I've done some stuff, I have a mark on me, I've got bad stuff, but you know what? I'm gonna fix myself. I'm gonna build a city, I'm gonna get in there, I'm gonna have music, I'm gonna have culture, we're gonna have industry, I'm gonna fix myself. I think that's what we're doing. Most often as Christians and very often as pagans. Lord, I can fix myself. All right, I kind of blew it over here. I, I didn't really repent of it. I didn't do what you really wanted me to do, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of grab in these other things and they're gonna, they're gonna fix me. I always ask people, how's that working for you? You get your five-year plan. How's your five-year plan working? Because you probably had a five-year plan before that one. How did that five-year plan work? We always have like this vision out there that when I get out here, then I'm gonna be all fine. Anyone have that vision? When I kind of get all these things fixed, my music and my culture, my article and my industry, when I, then I'll be fine. Really? Yeah, when cash is just falling out of my pocket, I'm successful, I'll be fine. No way. It doesn't happen that way. And what we'll see is just this thing descends and descends and descends. Here in this city, you see the first example of polygamy. Lamech grabs two wives. By the way, God never sanctions polygamy. Just like he didn't sanction murder, he doesn't say, he's just... The Bible now is recording history. This is what this dude did. He grabbed two wives. It messes up God's ratio. God's ratio is one to one. When one takes two, all of a sudden you have, a, you have the ratio messed up. So God never, never does that. Here's what, here's what Lamo does. He begins to look at women as property to acquire. And that begins to break this whole system that God put in in Genesis chapter two. They're just... They're just property to acquire, right? And then, verse 23, like, you read this, does anyone talk that way? Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. I mean, just imagine if I did that. Charity, hear my voice, you wife of Matt. Hear what I must say, right? There's just like this arrogance. You're just like, you are a moron, I'm sorry. And then he's like, I killed the man. He hit me, I killed him. And if Cain gets sevenfold, then Lamech is 77-fold. Huh, what's happening here? For me, this is like the first uh, uh, maybe gangster rap. Like, you know, it's, it's glorifying violence. That's what's happening right here. It's a glorification of violence. It's such a bummer, right? Okay, Cain was sevenfold, but you know what? Forget that. I'm, I'm 11 times more important than Cain. God sanctioned it with Cain. Lamech is demanding it for himself. And here's what you really see. Cain's mark was a reminder of his sin. Lamech now wears it like a badge of honor. Yeah, I'm a murderer. 77 times on your head. It's like a badge of honor. Is that our society today? Like bad things have become a badge of honor? There was this gal that she worked in Washington, D.C., and she was in this, you know, assistant to a senator or something. And she started to blog anonymously, perhaps you remember this story, just a couple of years ago, about her lifestyle and what she was doing, which was illicit and gross and all that kind of stuff. And she did it anonymously, but then someone found out who she was and outed her. And then immediately she was given a $300,000 book deal. That, that's our society now. Look at the reality stars, how they got their start. It's usually like, oh, it's like now a badge of honor, just like Lamech. I wear this thing, I killed the dude 77 times on your head. So what is happening right now is we're beginning to see why Genesis 6 is important. So you can look at the flood by itself and be like, that's so terrible. Wait a second. 
Wait a second, look at what's happening to society. Vengeance is breeding more vengeance. Men are now looking at women like property to acquire. Wait a second, look at what's happening to this stuff. Now, praise the Lord, there is some good news in here. And we'll end with this, verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born, a son was also born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of Yahweh. When did they begin to call upon the name of Yahweh? Vengeance, murder, polygamy. Sometimes we can bemoan like the decay of culture, but sometimes it is the very decay of culture that puts into people's mind the emptiness and the need to call upon God. I think sometimes God gives people everything they want so they know it's not enough, right? Psalm 106, God gave them the desires of their heart, but sent leanness to their soul. I'll give you everything you want and you're not gonna be happy. So then, and only then, will you begin to call upon the name of the Lord. So you have this vengeance, sevenfold with Cain, 77-fold with Lamech. If somebody gets me, I'm gonna beat them up 77 times worse. Like vengeance is leading to more vengeance, to murder, bad, 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 bad. Terrible. Jesus, fascinating to me, picks up this story. It's Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. And Peter has come up and said, hey, how many times should we forgive somebody? Seven times. That number comes from the mark on Cain. Seven times. And what does Jesus respond? No, 77 times. Now there's a little, you know, some people say it's seven times 70. Greek's a little funny there. I'm convinced it's 77. He's picking up from right here. That the way of the world is 77 times worse vengeance on people but the way of the kingdom is unbridled forgiveness. That's the way of the kingdom. The kingdom is to be radically different from this thing that did not work and had to be destroyed. The kingdom I'm bringing is gonna be radical, radical forgiveness. Is that better? How oh, so much better. You're not plagued by bitterness and grudges and all these things. You're set free from it. It's radical, radical forgiveness. So last Sunday, um, after the 11 o'clock service, we do this, this community group thing where uh, a bunch of really bright people, very smart people, get together and we kind of go over the message and try to apply it and ask questions for community group leaders. And so we're in this meeting and, and I'll tell you, it's one of my favorite things to do because uh, it's sharpening me as a pastor. Like, man, I didn't even think of it that way. That is really, really good to think of. So like, Danny and Manny York are in there, Mark Scudstadt's in there, Alexa Wiseman's in there, Selena Alderson's in there, Debbie Dennis is in there, uh, Justin Cabot's in there, just, and, and then there's some other people that come and go. I'm just brilliant. And this last time, Mark brought up this question. He said, how do we know? Because I, I said that one of the keys to Christianity is not trying to use Jesus like a super Walmart. It doesn't work that way. You don't buy off Jesus. That you need to be sold out to Jesus. So Mark asked the great question, how do you know if you're sold out to Jesus? Like, how do you know if you're actually sold out to Jesus? And as we discussed, for me, it boiled down to one thing. You will know when you can rejoice with those that rejoice. See, the world system is, I got to get mine. I got to buy off God. I got to manipulate God to get mine. And when I've got mine, I can rejoice. The Jesus system is, I'm just as happy when God has favor on you as if he had favor on me, because that's how connected we are. And I rejoice when God has favor on you. And I rejoice when you get the promotion and you get the raise. Oh, praise God. That's so awesome. That's the mark to me of being sold out to Jesus, because that's how Jesus lived. That's the mark. That's the way, that's the way of Jesus. We'll see the way of the serpent, how it ends in chapter six, brutal and bad. 
Can you rejoice? Can you rejoice when someone else gets what you want? I'm not saying I do that well all the time, but man, that's the high goal I have. To me, that's the mark of forgiveness. That's the mark of this kingdom rejoicing where others get it. The other way, man, it just leads. You just see a quick descent. Sin, murder, polygamy. Boom, boom, boom. Real fast. May we be those that live sold out lives to Jesus, forgiving 77 times, not getting vengeance on people, being super stoked when God shines his favor on somebody else. The Abel's. God, you got a regard for him? That's awesome. Hey, Abel, how'd you do it? Help me. Instead of killing him and murdering him in our mind. That's the way to do it. And so Jesus, a hard chapter, a descent, leaning into societal sin and destruction. And Lord, we can see the same things in this great country we call our home. And so I pray for the believers here at Edgewater, here on Wednesday night. I pray that we would be outposts of your kingdom, living a different ethic, living a different power, living a different purpose. So help us, Lord. Forgive us for redefining sin. Help us to know it is crouching, waiting, and that we need to be those that are vigilant and alert, as the apostle Peter tells us to. I pray that we would be a people that allow you to have vengeance. You're the one that knows the heart. You're the one that knows the motivation. You're the one that knows all the information. And so may, may we be a group of people that allow you to do your work. And may you give us the strength of spirit to forgive. I pray that we would be sensitive to your spirit when you begin to warn us about crouching sin. Protect us, Lord God. We know we have a strong enemy who wants to steal and to kill and to destroy. So sharpen our ears. May we hear clearly from your spirit, Lord, this week. Protect us. Lead us not into temptation, we pray. So go with us. Make us outposts of your kingdom. Places where we live redemption and renewal and forgiveness. And we pray that in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.